Welcome to our new podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peikoff, the editor of leaps.org, and today we're going to talk about the COVID-19 vaccines. I'm honored that my first guest is Dr. Art Kaplan of NYU, one of the world's leading bioethicists. Art, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So the big topic right now is the new J&J vaccine, which is likely to be given to millions of Americans in the coming weeks. It only requires one shot. It can be stored in refrigerators for several months. It has fewer side effects. And most importantly, it is extremely effective at the big things, preventing hospitalizations and deaths, though not as effective as Pfizer and Moderna, in preventing moderate cases, especially potentially in older adults with underlying conditions. So Art, what's your take overall on how enthusiastic Americans should be about this vaccine? I'm usually enthusiastic. The more weapons, the better. This vaccine, while maybe slightly less efficacious than the Moderna and the Pfizer ones, is easier to make, is easier to ship. It's one shot, you know. Here, there's already been problems of getting people to come back in for their second shots. I would say five, seven percent of people don't show up, even though you remind them and you nag them, they don't come back. So a one-shot option is great. A one-shot option that's easy to, if you will, brew up in your uh, rural pharmacy without having to have uh, special instructions is great. And I think it's going to really facilitate herd immunity, meaning we'll see millions and millions and millions of doses of the Janssen vaccine out there as an option, I'm going to say summer. Great. And to be fair, it's worth mentioning that the J&J vaccine was tested in clinical trials after variants began to circulate that we know about. And it's only one shot instead of two like the other vaccines, and it gets more effective over time. So is it really fair to directly compare its efficacy to the mRNA vaccines? Well, you know, people are going to do that. And one issue that'll come up ethically is people are going to say, can I choose my vaccine? I want the most uh, efficacious one. I want the name brand that I trust. I don't want the new platform. I like Janssen's because it's an older, more established way to make vaccines or whatever. Who knows what cuckoo cockamamie reasons they might have. To me, you take what you can get. It'll be great. It's way above what we normally would expect those 95% success rates are off the charts, getting something that's 70% effective, it's perfectly wonderful. I wish we had flu shots that were 70% effective. And the other thing to keep in mind is we're going to see more mutations. We're going to see more strains. That's just the reality of viruses. So they'll mutate, more strains will appear. We can't just say, oh, my goodness, there's a South African one or the California one or the UK one. We better, I don't know, do something different. We're just going to have to basically resign ourselves, I think, to boosters. So right now, take the vaccine. I'm almost tempted to say, shut up and take the vaccine. Don't worry about choosing. Just get what you can get. If you live in a rural community and all they have is Janssen, take it. If you're in another country and all they ship to you is Janssen, take it. And then we'll worry about the next round of virus, you know, mutations, if you will, when we get to the boosters. I'm very, I'm more concerned that these things aren't going to last more than a year or two than I am, that they're not going to pick up every mutation. 
So on that note, shipping to rural places or low-income countries that lack the ultra-cold freezers that you need for the super-effective mRNA vaccines, the Janssen vaccine seems like a really great option. But are we going to encounter a potential conflict of people saying, well, there's, quote, poor or rich vaccines and one is slightly less effective than the other. And so are we going to disenfranchise people and undermine their actual willingness to take the vaccine? Well, it's interesting. I think the first problem is going to be I have vaccine and I don't have any vaccine (laughs) between rich and poor countries. Look, the poor countries are screaming to get vaccine supply sent to them. I think, uh, for example, Ghana received recently 600 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine. It was freed up by South Africa, which decided they didn't want to use it because they thought there was, quote unquote, a better vaccine coming. So even among the poorer nations or the developing nations, some vaccines are getting typed as the not as good or the uh, less desirable. We've already started to see it. But for the most part, the rich countries are going to try and vaccinate to herd immunity. We can argue about the ethics of whether that's right before they start sharing, but I think we'll have haves and have-nots, herd immunity produced in the rich countries, Japan, North America, Europe, uh, by the end of the year anyway, and still some countries floundering around saying, I didn't get anything, and what are you going to do? And I know you said to people, which is a very memorable quote, just shut up and take the vaccine, whatever you can get, whatever is available to you now, do it. But inevitably, as you mentioned, some people are going to say, well, I just want to wait to get the best one possible. Um, When will people have a choice in vaccines, do you think? I don't think you'll see that till next year. I think we're going to see distribution according to where the supply chains are that the uh, vaccine manufacturers use. So If I use McKesson and they ship to the Northeast and that's where my vaccine goes, that's what's available there. If I'm uh, contracted to Walmart and they buy Janssen, that's what you're going to see at the big box store. I don't think you're really going to get too much in the way of choice until next year when then, you know, they're going to say they ship three different kinds of vaccine and I can offer you one dose or two dose. One of them lasts a year, one of them lasts 18 months. I don't think we're going to have the informed choice dilemma until next year. Right now, the steep demand is outstripping the supply, and there's been a lot of pressure put on the vaccine makers to ramp up as quickly as possible. Of course, um, they say that they're doing that and the government is pressuring them to do that. But when do you think we'll cross over to the point where vaccine hesitancy is a bigger issue than vaccine demand? Yeah, so this is a really interesting issue. I'm glad you uh, asked me this because I think it's got uh, good foresight. The big ethics fight now is scarcity and who goes first. And the ethicists, including me, are having a fine old time arguing about healthcare workers versus policemen versus uh, people who work for UPS versus somebody who's working at the drugstore. Who's more important? Why are they more important? Who's essential? Actually, I think most of that is nonsense because what we've learned is that you can't do much in the way of microallocation. The system strains and it doesn't work. You've got to use some pretty broad categories like over 65, still breathing and working, and a kid. The kid will go last because we don't have the data. Everybody else should get in line and the over 65 should probably be first because they're at high risk. You know, we can't do this. We stink at... uh, sort of the micromanagement of vaccine supply, plus it encourages cheating, 
right? So everybody's out there with vaccine hunters, vaccine tourism, bribing, lying, uh, dressing up like a grandmother to get a vaccine. My favorite one was some rich people in Vancouver flew up to the Yukon and pretended to be Inuit Aboriginal people to get a vaccine. That will all pass. We'll have enough vaccine by the summer, more or less, that the issue will then be, how are we going to get to herd immunity or at least maximal immunity, knowing that we don't have data on kids? People under 18, I think, are something like 20% of our population. That means the best you could do is 80%. The other population still could be passing the virus, kids here or Europe or wherever. Well, the military refusal rate that I just saw was 30% saying no. I've heard nursing home staff rates, nursing attendants, nursing aides up at 40 to 50% saying no. So these are huge refusal rates. People are nervous about a warp speed vaccine. Some of them are like, well, Art, you take it. If you're still alive in six months, then maybe I'll take it. But I want to see that it really works and it's uh, safe. And, you know, other people say we don't want to be exploited. We don't trust the government, whatever. Uh, to, to uh, uh, offer us these vaccines. I'm going to answer, that was a long-winded way of saying, we're going to see some mandates. We're going to see some coercion start to show up in the vaccine supply because I think, for example, the military, the day one of these license gets, uh, one of the, excuse me, one of these vaccines gets licensed, right now they're out on emergency approval, collect data for three or four more months, get the FDA to formally license the thing, I'd say between five minutes and 10 minutes, the military will be mandating. They have no interest in your objection. They have no interest in your choice. They know what the mission is. It's traditionally, you know, we're going to get you as healthy as we can to fight a war. The fact that you say, gee, I might die. They kind of say, yeah, we noticed that, but that's kind of in the military culture. You know, we fight wars and do stuff like that. So they'll be mandating, uh, I think, very rapidly. And I think healthcare workers will. I think most hospitals are going to say 50% refusal rate among this nursing group. Forget it. We can't risk that. Nursing homes have been devastated by COVID. They're not going to have AIDS out there unvaccinated. So the only thing holding up the mandates right now is that we don't have full licensure. We have emergency use approvals, and that's good, but it's a little tough to mandate without full license. The day we get it, three months, four months, we're going to start to see mandates. And I'll make one more prediction as long as I'm in a crystal ball mode. It won't be the government at that point that says you have to vaccinate. It'll be private business because they're going to say, you know what, come on my cruise ship because everybody who works there is vaccinated. Come on into my bar. Everybody who works there is vaccinated. They're going to start to use it as an advertising marketing lure. It's safe here. Come on in. So I think they'll say, if you want to work on an airline as a flight attendant, you get vaccinated. We, we have vaccine proof. You know, you can show it on your iPhone, on your whatever. You have a card that you did it. And so I think we'll see many businesses moving to vaccinate so that they can bring their customers back in. So private businesses, that's one thing because people do not have to patronize those places right. if they don't want to get vaccinated. But of course, this is going to open up a can of worms with schools, right? Public schools, if they mandate teacher vaccines and you have to send your kid to school and you have to go to work at a school, um, what happens then? Well, 
schools are going to be at the end of the line because that's where we have the least data. So I don't think we're going to see school mandates on kids, maybe not till next year. But we already have school mandates on kids. They were the first group to feel the force of mandates because it turns out that measles and mumps and whooping cough are easy to get at school, sneezing and coughing on one another. Some states have added flu shots. Many states, California, Maine, New York, have actually eliminated exemptions. The only way out for those kids is uh, if they have a health reason. They're not even allowing religious or so-called philosophical or personal choice exemptions. COVID vaccines will just line up right next to those things. Teachers will demand it. The pressure will be there. We'll have a lot of information by next year on safety. I'm even going to say people are going to be less tolerant of non-vaccinators. You know, now it's sort of like, well, yeah, I guess. By this time next year, if you haven't vaccinated, I think people are going to come to your house and board it up and make you stay inside. Well, given how much we're so dependent on these vaccines to get us back to a regular life, I can I can understand the sentiment. Um, what is your take on the big controversy right now, just going back towards the present day a little bit more, on having kids in schools? Is that something you support before all the teachers have been vaccinated? I do, but I have a problem with the definition of a teacher in a school. So, by the way, some people that I know, friends of mine, have said, well, I'm a teacher, I'm a yoga instructor. I'm a teacher, I'm an aerobics instructor. So I should get priority access to vaccination. I kind of don't think that's what we meant by teacher. And here's the difference in schools. So I live in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Up the street from me is a very fancy private elementary school. It has endless grounds, open classrooms, If there are eight kids in a class, I'll pass out. I mean, it is great. I wish I went to college there. It's like, uh, it's a wonderful setup. Do they need to vaccinate everybody? Probably not. They're all sitting six feet apart. Everybody in there is going to mask. They're going to have huge auditoriums. They never have to come in contact. I've been in some other schools in the Bronx. No ventilation, no plumbing. 35 kids in a class, the teacher's 65. And you sort of think, boy, I'd want to vaccinate everybody in sight in this place because unless we rehaul the buildings and downsize the class size, people are going to get sick in here. They probably were getting sick anyway before COVID, but now COVID makes it worse. They're probably getting the flu or colds at nine times the rate that they were in Ridgefield, Connecticut. So my point is this. High school kids doing certain things. They can come in on a mixed schedule, three days a week, two days a week, do their thing. They know how to mask. Am I worried about vaccinating there? Not too much. Elementary school kids need psychosocial development, need to learn social skills, sometimes going to schools that aren't that wonderful. Yeah, let's vaccinate them. So even though I was complaining a bit about micromanagement and trying to parse out, here I think you need to do it. I think you're probably going to say, College, eh, I don't know that you have to vaccinate there. High schools, 50-50. Elementary school, let's do them first. One more question on kids before I want to move on. There's been talk about whether it's necessary before kids are allowed to get this vaccine to have the FDA go to full approval 
with the full bulk of data necessary for that versus just an emergency authorization for the general population, given that kids are at so much lower risk than adults. But then, of course, it'll take a lot more time, I imagine, to get the kids the vaccines. What's your take on that? We historically have demanded higher levels of evidence to do anything with a kid. And I think that's going to hold true here, too. I don't think you're going to see emergency use authorization for people under 18. Maybe they'd cut it and say, we'll do it 12 to 18. But I, I, you know, just looking at the history of drug development, vaccine development, people are really leery of taking risks with kids. And, you know, appropriately so. Kids can't even make their own decision, right? I can decide if I want to take an emergency use vaccine. If I think it's too iffy, I don't take it right now. So up to me to kind of weigh the risk benefit. Um, I don't think so. I think you'll see licensing required before we really get at least 12 and under, let's put it there. Uh, And I'm not worried about the safety or efficacy of these things in kids. I think there's no reason, given the biological mechanisms, to think they're going to be any different but it's going to be pretty tough pre-licensure to impose anything. And when do you think that licensure for kids under 12 could come? Well, two groups of people are now being studied. Pregnant women, the study's just launched. They'll probably be done sufficiently by the end of the year. Kids for full licensure, mm, spring next year. Okay. And because this is a big question for a lot of women that I know and women in general who are pregnant, what would you say to them now who, where we don't have the data yet on the safety, but they have to decide and they can't wait six or nine more months? Vaccinate yesterday. I mean, literally, I think the COVID virus is too dangerous. I think it's dangerous to the mom. I think it's dangerous to the fetus. It is an unknown, but boy, I would bet on the vaccine more than I would taking my chances with the virus. Got it. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about some of the big open questions around the vaccines that we're starting to get some early evidence about. For one thing, do they prevent transmission and not just symptomatic disease? And I think it's worth pointing out for our audience here that there is a big difference between preventing symptoms and preventing infections, as lots of asymptomatic people know. And we have a lot of Uh, new real-world evidence from Israel, from Scotland, reporting that even asymptomatic infections are are greatly reduced by uh, the the Pfizer vaccine, for example. What is your take on how this new data is going to change guidance around post-vaccination behaviors? Yeah. What do we got in the podcast? Seven or eight hours to go into? That's a tough tough one. It's uh, complicated. But trying to oversimplify a little bit. So there is a difference, and this has gotten confusing, I fear. Some vaccines prevent you from getting infected at all. It looks like the Pfizer and the Moderna fall into that category. That's great, because no matter what else, it probably means you're going to reduce transmission, because if you can't be infected, I don't know how you're going to give it to somebody else. So I'll bet that that's a transmission reduction. Looks like Johnson & Johnson, unclear, seems to prevent uh, bad symptoms and death but not moderate disease, and it isn't clear that it stops you from getting infected. So that may become an issue in terms of how we strategically uh, approach when we have enough vaccine of the different types. We may want to say, look, in some environments, we've got to control spread, nursing home. We want to see the Moderna there. We want to see the Pfizer there. In other situations, we just want to make sure you're not dead. Let's uh, get the Janssen thing out there, and that'll be great. 
I'll give you an example from my own current existence. So I've been pretty cautious. As I said, I live in Richfield, Connecticut. I have a house, pretty roomy, um, but I haven't left it very often. I'm willing to take the chance to go shopping. I'll confess I'm even willing to take the chance wearing a mask to go to the drugstore, and I've had a haircut or two. So I've been not hyper-cautious, but cautious. Don't invite people over that I don't know where they've been, so to speak. Um, But now I'm vaccinated, and my wife is fully vaccinated. And the other night, for the first time, we went out to an indoor restaurant. Probably haven't done that in 10 months. No, September, I don't know, six months. Been a long time. I hope you really enjoyed that first meal out because that's something that I dream about, boy. Where am I going to go and what am I going to order? <laughs> we went to the fanciest restaurant in town, as a matter of fact. Good. And yeah. they were social distancing and everybody was masked on the waist stuff. But I figure good enough for me if the thing isn't going to kill me, if I was just told I was going to have a risk of being sick for three days or something, that's good enough for me. I don't want to infect somebody else. So I'll still mask and do that. I'm not sure, but I'm absolutely ready to say, and in fact, I've scheduled two trips. Uh, We're going to take a trip to Florida. We're going to take a trip to North Carolina in March and April. I'm figuring even then things will be better. But everybody's going to have choices like that to make. It'll be really interesting. You know, if I'm Tony Fauci or one of our big public health guys, I don't want anybody going anywhere. I'm risk averse until maybe... 2027. The thing will be controlled and eliminated and we'll have lots of data and everything will be great. I'm a little bit more, shall we say, individual choice oriented, making individual risk things. Like I said, and I'm a little bit oriented to that. Good enough for me as long as I'm responsible to others. I don't want to make anybody else sick. But if I am ready to take the chance of just being sick for a few days and I believe the vaccines available will keep me out of the hospital and keep me out of the uh, mortician's uh, building. Okay, I'm ready to do it. So each one of us is going to have to make a value decision. This is what I find interesting about what's normal. It isn't science. It isn't medicine. It's ethics. You're going to have to decide how much risk do you want to take? Do you want to be a jerk to your neighbor if if you could still have a teeny chance of infecting them? Am I willing to live in a world where COVID's around, but it's kind of rare? I know kids are still transmitting, but it's not really a huge risk. That's the kind of value choice that each of us will be faced with. So I really appreciate your emphasis on individual choice and values here and letting, basically allowing people to make those judgments based on their circumstances um, for themselves. You know, if you're not deathly afraid of getting a mild cold type illness, then I can understand why you want to fly or go to a restaurant and other pe- people might not be comfortable with any risk at all. And they're perfectly welcome to stay home until Or they may say, you know, I'm 80. I have nine cl- uh, chronic diseases. A mild illness still freaks me out. Okay. Sure, of course. That. That's, I'm perfectly respectful of that. Um, so I think it's going to wind up. It's interesting. I think we've been used to public health messaging and people have this attitude that at some point, Fauci or the head of the CDC, somebody's going to show up on TV and say, all clear, everything's over, back to normal, and we've declared victory over the enemy, you know, it's Armistice Day, whatever. It isn't going to work like that, is my prediction. It's going to be a slow creep. 
different people deciding, hey, I'm safe enough, I'm wandering out, other people saying, nope, nope, not ready, or somebody saying, I'm pregnant, I'm staying in, I don't care what's going on, I, I'm not going to take that risk. I, I think people will be surprised there, there isn't going to be a national day of uh, resolution or something. Right. It's more about these individual behaviors and over time letting people decide what to do. So, for example, yeah. if, if you had grandkids and they were not vaccinated, but you are, would you hug them? Would you get close to them? How would you behave and how do you think they should behave around you? So I'd be still nervous about uh, them transmitting, but I'm also very a strong believer in my vaccine. So yes, I would hug them. And yes, I would have them come to visit. And that's probably going to happen, actually, <laughs> fairly soon. But their parents aren't vaccinated yet. And so I'm still nervous that mm, maybe better not to do so, you know, a lot of social mingling right now. Uh, but yeah, people have said to me, my grandmom is 94. I don't know how long she's going to be here. You think if I'm vaccinated, it's okay to pay a visit. I'm going to start to say, yeah, I, I get that. And I think one thing that's lost in these discussions of safety is also the aspect of of benefits to human life and why we even live in the first place. I mean, we don't yeah. live lives of complete safety. We drive, we fly, we do things that are risky, but we yeah. take those risks because it's worth it. So I think that should be part of the discussion overall, not just safety, period, right? And not just saving lives. So, you know, ski slopes, there are a lot of orthopedic clinics at the bottom of big ski slopes. <laughs> it's sending a message like, you could break bones here, but people say, I want to do it. I enjoy it. Okay. I'm not sure all the time that we should factor all of that into our pooled insurance plan, but that's a fight for another day. Um, nonetheless, I would, you know, something I would pay for it because I like to encourage people to enjoy themselves. So I, you know, I have my bad habits. They have their bad habits. I think it's sort of a wash in a certain way, but more to your point, I think um, if you look out there and say, there are some areas where we don't let you choose. You must put your kid in a car seat. Kid can't make a decision. The thing is very effective, really saves their lives. They should have a life ahead of them, and we're going to force it. And I'm all for that. In other instances, am I going to the restaurant? Well, am I going to drive a car? Am I going to cross a busy street? Am I going to, as you said, there are many things I have to do where I have to think about the risk benefit. I may make a lousy calculation and underestimate what it means to get in my uh, car and drive in terms of risk relative to getting hit by lightning or some other risks. But, you know, that's a little bit more for me. That's a really thought-provoking conversation, but I want to switch to for a minute to another question mark around the vaccines besides transmission is the long-term studies of their effects on the, the immune system. And one thing that I've noticed uh, some experts are concerned about is the fact that a lot of the people in the placebo groups have dropped out of the trials and gotten the vaccine. Uh, because ethically, you can't withhold the vaccinations from these volunteers. But at the same time, that could be hurting our ability to compare the vaccine's long-term effects against people who haven't had the vaccine for a long time. So how significant is this issue in your mind? Some people actually proposed that we not let them drop out. We not tell the subjects in these big trials of vaccines if they're in the placebo group. Can't do that. It's clearly unethical. Achieved consensus on that decades ago with various studies where the researchers said, we don't have to tell the subjects that there's a treatment. 
Tuskegee did that, for example, the horrible study in the early, uh, late 60s, early 70s, where they didn't tell people there was a cure and kept the study going of venereal disease. But there have been many others since. So we already know you got to give them the option. Some people may stay in anyway, but not enough to allow the study to really have integrity. So I think current studies are likely to fall apart and we won't get answers in the way we're used to with randomized trials to the long-term effects or even to the how long does it last question. We need to build a system that can follow people. We can't rely on them being in a observed clinical trial. We have to start to say, you register, we're going to check on you every year to see how you're doing. That's got to be done. And one other provocative idea, I pushed it long ago, challenge studies. Deliberately infect a small group of people, hopefully healthy people, that choose to do it with mild COVID and then see what the vaccine does in them and then get an answer faster if you study them over time. They volunteered knowingly to get exposed this way. I think you're going to see some challenge studies done, particularly to compare vaccines. There's still more vaccines coming. Maybe some of them will last longer, cheaper, safer. I don't know. The only way you're going to study the next round of vaccines is in a challenge study. You're never going to anybody to sign up to be in a placebo-controlled randomized trial. You know, that was actually my next question that the UK just approved the first ever challenge study to infect the volunteers on purpose with the virus. Now, the UK has often been much more progressive in doing medical research than the US. Do you think the US will ever get to that point? Are we just going to rely on other countries to do that for us? Mm, I think we won't get there. We're so conservative, so litigation conscious. People are freaked out that if somebody got sick and died in a challenge study, it would bankrupt the sponsor. I think the UK is on the right path, but I don't really think we're going to follow. Okay. Well, I hope that they can do the work that we really need done. And I'm grateful that there are other countries that are more permissive of of risk-taking and and doing the controversial studies that are required. You know, ironically, if you don't do the challenge studies, the only other way you're going to get to do big-scale randomized placebo trials is in the poorest countries that can't get anything. And that makes awful lot like exploitation, taking advantage, as opposed to choice. But, you know, that's where you'd go. You'd say, oh, I got this new vaccine. I'll test it out and... Sierra Leone, and uh, they don't have anything anyway, so better that half of them get the vaccine than not. And I still think the challenge study makes more ethics sense. Yeah, absolutely. That would really be a shame to be put in that position instead of just allowing people to decide. You know, we let people sign up for the army where they might die. What's the real ethical difference with signing up for a potentially dangerous study? But if you're young and healthy, the risk is low. By the way, the risk from COVID to, say, 18 to 35-year-olds, who's kind of who you'd be looking at, is about the same as donating a kidney, which we also allow all the time. Right, right. Great point. So moving away from that, I do, before we finish up here, I just want to quickly touch on, of course, the big elephant in the room, which we all have to deal with, unfortunately, which is the variance. So I want to talk about where we stand I've heard some vaccine experts recently say, like Paul Offit, for example, has said he doesn't expect a fourth surge due to this, but others are more cautious and take the flip side, saying this is the calm before the storm. We're about to see another huge explosion. You know, California has recently reported a new strain has accounts for 
maybe potentially 50% of cases now and could be 90% by the end of March. But we're seeing such big declines in the numbers, in hospitalizations, in cases. So what should people make of these conflicting messages? You know, there's an attitude in medicine that uh, many doctors take toward things like incipient or new prostate cancer, sometimes toward breast cancer, or at least lumps. It's called watchful waiting. You pay attention, you watch what's going on, but you don't do anything right away. I would still get vaccinated. I would still take what I could get. I still believe that it's likely that these vaccines are going to provide some protection, if not against infection, then at least against the worst symptoms and the worst uh, chances of dying because they're really going to boost up the basic immune system, which should be able to start to fight against viruses. That said, could we wind up with some virulent new strain that evades the current vaccine platforms? Yes. Is it likely? I don't think so. But what it does mean is get ready to get boosters because the response to new strains that have been the result of viral mutations is you got to adjust your vaccine. That's what we'll do. I hope it doesn't send us back into quarantine and isolation and distancing and all the rest of it as our only control. I'm hoping that the manufacturers can roll out boosters more quickly than the first round of vaccines. And the FDA has just said that the vaccine developers will not need to start over with new clinical trials to test these boosters. So that will greatly expedite the process. And do you think that's the right call? Yes, absolutely. You're not changing the fundamental nature of the uh, vaccine platform. You're just tweaking if you will, which chemistry responds to the virus. So yeah, I do. And one question then that necessarily everyone is going to wonder is, well, if I got the J&J vaccine, can I get an mRNA booster? Can you mix and match? Is that going to work for your immune system? Yeah, we don't have any idea. And I wouldn't do that right away. I know some countries are thinking about that to sort of get more, if you will, use out of a limited supply. I'd say wait three months and do it the right way where the data is in evidence. I'm not worried about people getting a second shot of something different and dropping dead. I'm just worried that it won't work. <laughs> so uh, I, 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 I'm not a fan of mix and match. I mean, you can do it in some studies, by the way, you could do it in some challenge studies and get a faster answer than you would having to try and do this in 30,000 people over a year. But no, I don't think that's a good way to go. And I'm not a big fan of one-shot strategies either. I think what we know is that the second shot really kicks your immune system into high gear, and that's what you want for real protection. So I I know why people say it, but I, I wouldn't advocate for it. Great. And from my last question, one of our big themes this year that we'll be following all throughout the year at leaps.org is our progress towards an eventual return to life and return to normalcy. So I have to ask that question to you, given everything that you know and that we've discussed today, when do you think our lives and society will start to look normal again with schools and restaurants and businesses open, people are flying and gathering without fear? traveling, et cetera? I think you're going to see a lot of that this summer. There's going to be enough vaccine out there, even if the epidemiologists aren't 100% happy. As I said, I think a lot of people are going to say, I'm happy enough, good enough for me. I'm going to sports and I'm flying and I'm taking a vacation. And we'll be outside again. Remember, we had the ability to eat outdoors and congregate less when the weather's better around the whole country. And I think that will open up Europe and the U.S. in addition. 
What I'm worried about is if we had to go back in the fall to a more controlled environment, either because a new strain appeared or just because things weren't as efficacious as we hoped they'd be. But I think summer is going to be good this year. Well, I hope you're right. I hope your crystal ball is working today. (laughs) (laughs) And if it's not working right, email Kira. Don't talk to me. I cannot be held liable for this. Thank you, Art, for a fascinating discussion. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you like this show, follow Making Sense of Science to hear new episodes coming once a month. And if you want to give us feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on our website, leaps.org. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>